Okay, we're back in Genesis 4. Is this on? Okay. <coughs> and we find here in today's narrative, it doesn't take very long for the development of the two seeds forecast in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that are the result of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, but also including his gracious promise to begin to take effect. In the very first generation of the human race, the seed of the serpent, Satan, is evidenced in the sinful life of Cain, and the seed of the woman in the faithful life of Abel. The last time we focused on the way of Cain as the way of the unrighteous. And his life and actions reveal characteristics of those who reject God. So we found that the unrighteous diminish the worship of God in the offering and the attitude that Cain brought before the Lord. He brought the fruit of his own labor, but not in an attitude of faith. And so that diminishes the word of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, and really elevates ourself before him. Then we found the unrighteous ignore God's counsel and warning in verses 6 to 8. The Lord informed Cain that if he didn't change his attitude, he didn't change his ways, that sin was crouching at the door of his heart, ready to pounce on him, and control him, and he chose not to follow that counsel. So the unrighteous then cover their sin rather than confess it, verses 9 to 10. We all know that tendency. Instead of responding to the Lord's uh, confrontation over his sin, he claimed to have no culpability in slaying his brother Abel. And then finally, we saw the unrighteous deserve the just judgment of God and verses 11 and 12, because of his failure to repent, Cain was destined to wander through life as a vagabond away from the presence and the providence of God. There's one more characteristic of the way of Cain that we're going to uncover today, and then we're going to move on to the way of Cain in regard to human civilization away from God. And so that reveals another aspect of the two seeds. The beginning of the the way of the world, the kingdom of this world, and also the kingdom of God. Our chapter, however, will end on a positive note as we see the birth of Seth, whom God appointed to replace Abel. And in his days, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So let's ask God's blessing this morning on his word. Heavenly Father, as we once again look at the way of Cain and how far from you that ended up being, help us as your people uh, to reject that way. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is on the way of Cain, who is unrighteous before you because they haven't repented of their sin and turned to you, we pray that you'll just speak to the heart today and show them the way of truth, the way of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see that we live in a generation similar to that of Cain, 
We live in a so-called civilized society, but it's a society that largely rejects uh, spiritual uh, truth. It rejects God, moves in its own direction. And so uh, we have come the way of Cain, and we understand it personally. Help us as your people, Lord, to uh, show what the kingdom of God is, and that we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom rather than the earthly. So bless your word to our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we continue this line of thought in the first uh, several verses here, the way of Cain being the way of the unrighteous, uh, we concluded with God's just judgment on Cain in verses 11 and 12. And we found there that the earth will no longer produce its bounty for Cain because he polluted it with his brother's innocent blood. He also will find no permanent resting place, but be forced to be a wanderer away from the presence of the Lord. And now we see Cain responding to this judgment of God in verse 13. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And what we see here is that the unrighteous may be remorseful, but not repentant. Now Cain appears to be remorseful. But what is the object of his remorse? Is it that he is, it's not that he has slain his brother. There's not one word here that expresses any kind of sorrow uh, taking the innocent life of Abel. Rather, he's complaining that the punishment for his crime is too severe. He's expressing remorse over the judgment for his sin being too hard for him to bear. He's pretty much feeling sorry for himself. Now Cain also objects about being driven from the face of the ground and the face of God, or the presence of God, the presence of the ground. Uh, The former alludes to God's punishment that the ground from which he had brought his gift to the Lord would no longer be productive for him. And that's going to make his life much harder. Apparently, before this time, as he worked and cultivated the ground, he was reaping a good harvest from that, but that's not going to be the case moving forward. But then also, he says he will be hidden or banished from the presence of the Lord, which is a far worse judgment. And we wonder why he only realizes this now. Why hadn't he thought of this when God warned him the first time? Don't keep going in this direction. Did he think that the Lord would would not find out his sin? And then furthermore, if he was remorseful of the severity of the judgment, why then did he not just confess what he had done, say it was wrong and sinful, and plead for the Lord's forgiveness? He's still moving in that hard-hearted way in his response to God's just judgment. So this is the way of the unrighteous. When given an opportunity to consider their ways and repent, they continue in their wrong attitude and actions. Uh, They 
then uh, when these things are discovered, they double down, they complain about the punishment, and they still refuse to get things right. Cain also is fearful of what's going to happen to him in the future as he wanders the earth. He fears that somebody who knows about his crime is going to act as the avenger of of blood and and they're going to take his life. Now, if you think about that situation, who would those people be? They would be his brothers. They would be his nephews. They would uh, be people who are related to him. Probably the news of this is, is going to spread throughout the family. He's going to leave the, the presence of the family. He's got to move out of Eden. So everybody's going to wonder, you know, why that situation is. And so people are going to understand that he's done a sinful, wrong thing, and he's afraid in the future somebody's going to be the avenger of blood. So the, the result of unrepentant sin brings about fear that what you did to someone is eventually going to happen to you. And oftentimes it does. The Lord says if you dig a pit, you're going to fall in it. If you're going to roll a stone to hurt somebody, it's going to roll back on you. But here we find God's long-suffering and mercy even to the unrighteous. Because we see how God responds to, uh, to Cain's complaint. In verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So here we have God's mercy. Cain deserved to die for slaying his brother. God did not allow him to die. He didn't let him die. He punished him severely. And now he is, he is actually going to preserve him graciously as he even wanders away from the Lord. Uh, vow, God vows that whoever would seek to harm Cain would receive a sevenfold retribution from God. So he would get seven times worse than what Cain got. And to seal that promise, he gave some kind of a mark to Cain. Now the word mark there means a sign. So it's not really, doesn't have to be taken literally, it's some kind of a mark or a tattoo on his body. It was a sign that God placed in conjunction with Cain that people would know they need to leave their hands off of him. And perhaps that sign simply was God's word. Because as Cain perhaps stole this story, and others heard of it, such as Adam and Eve, they would be saying, look, this is what God said. If you kill Cain, God's going to take vengeance out on you sevenfold. That might have been the sign. The word of God is often the sign. Okay? So whatever it was, whatever this sign was, it was clear to people when they came upon Cain that they were not to take vengeance into their own hands. God already had done that. And if they try... Well, it's going to be worse for them than it was for Cain. And we often call this providence of God in relationship to the ungodly uh, his, uh, his common grace. 
He gives people their whole lifetime to acknowledge Him, to repent of their sin, to turn to Christ. And in the meantime, most people uh, enjoy much of life's pleasures. I know that's not uh, universal. Some people have pretty miserable lives. But in the end, they will experience His just judgment upon their sin because they won't turn to Him. That's what happened to Cain. And that's what eventually happens to everyone, not necessarily in this life, but surely in the next. Now, the Lord further displayed his mercy in allowing Cain to have descendants, a large family. Unfortunately, though, what we see here is the development of civilization from a humanistic, worldly perspective, all the way down to the seventh generation from Adam, in the person Lamech. So let's take a look at the way of Cain being the way of worldly civilization. And what we see here, uh, beginning of verse 16, is this movement away from God. And the first thing we see here is that civilization is now going to develop not under the Lord, and for the Lord, but away from the Lord. Verse 16 says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now you remember that God had to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden because they could not dwell there with sin. So they were moved out of the garden. They went eastward, away from God, but they were still in the vicinity of Eden in which the garden was planted. So they were out of uh, the presence of the Lord, but they were still near in proximity, and apparently there was some worship going on as these uh, brothers brought their offerings to the Lord. But now, in contrast, Cain moves out of Eden toward the east in what is called the land of Nod. But what is interesting here is that Nod means wandering. So he went to the land of wandering. And we go through the Bible and we find that the word Nod, the land of Nod, is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So it's likely that this is not a geographical place. It's a euphemism for the rest of Cain's life wandering away from the Lord. He's wandering uh, throughout life without God, without his providential care, without uh, recognizing him. And it's just kind of going to be uh, a a life away from God. And that's what civilization becomes. A life away from God. All right, so it's devoid now of fellowship with the Lord, and civilization is going to develop humanistic civilization from this line of Cain. So in verses 17 and 18, this is what we see. We see civilization building a sense of community without God, without the Lord. Cain, with his wife, have a child. Verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now everybody wonders, where did his wife come from? 
Well, you know, use your head. It had to be one of his sisters. Uh, this is the way that God planned it from the beginning. If you're going to have a couple that starts all of it off, well, then there have to be marriages between their children. Now, this is repugnant to us today, uh, but back then, this is the way God would fill the earth. And, of course, you have to think, you have a perfect couple having children now. Uh, the gene pool is going to be purer than it ever will be in the future. And so it's going to take several generations for, you know, uh, harmful mu mutations to occur, which would make close marriages of this nature um, dangerous. But that's not going to happen for many, many generations. And then it doesn't really take very long where the family spreads out, where now it's going to be, you know, cousins, nephews, nieces, and then second cousins. It's not going to take long before this to spread out, and you're not that closely related anymore. And we have to understand that even when you get to the time of Abraham, after the flood, Abraham married his half-sister. So even then, it was okay in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, things get worse and worse as time moves forward. We come to the time of the law, time of Moses, and God sets up the parameters of who you're going to marry and who you shouldn't marry. And by that time, it's not close relatives. So there's really not a problem with this if we, we think it through. Now, we think of his wife. We're not, we don't have her name, but apparently, uh, we don't know when they were married, but uh, apparently she rejected God the same way that, that Cain did, or she wouldn't have gone with him. Or perhaps they got together after this and he felt, she felt sorry for him, whatever. But it, all that doesn't matter. The thing is here, in these new circumstances of life where Cain's away from God in the, the land of wandering, they have their first child. They name him Enoch, which means dedication or consecration. And it goes on to say, and he built a city. Well, who built a city? Did Enoch build a city or did Cain build a city? Well, it seems that Cain began to build the city because he names it after his son Enoch. And then we're wondering, well, what? Wait a minute. Cain's supposed to be wandering all over the place and having no, uh, no settled condition in life. But then he starts building a city. And we have to start thinking, well, what's this all about? Well, again... Uh, perhaps this is Cain's way of neutralizing God's curse of wandering. I'm going to build a place where all my family can live together. But it doesn't say that he completed the building. The verb is that he began to build. And it's very likely his son finished the building. And then uh, uh, from there, uh, as the family grew, they may have st stayed in that area, in that city. They may have established other cities over time. And these wouldn't be great, huge cities that we have today. It probably would have been fortified, maybe have a wall around it, and some uh, crude uh, dwelling places within it. Uh, so it wouldn't be, you know, like modern-day civilization, the cities that we know. But it was a place where family units were built, where they could conglomerate together, where they could conduct commerce and things of this nature and uh, be settled. 
But I don't think Cain ever really just settled there. Now, um, uh, the name of Enoch is dedication or consecration. So what he does is he names this building project after his son, consecrating it to his son and any future heirs. And that's what modern society does. We build up our portfolios and then we pass them on to our children and our children's children. And we make, uh, you know, things like, you know, Trump Tower, or we name something else after our name. And we think that by doing that, we're going to perpetuate uh, our life forever. It's modern civilization started in the past, where we keep God out of the picture, and we dedicate everything to our own efforts, to our own family, to our own progeny, and this is what is beginning to happen. Now, as the story continues here, it gives us the next uh, few generations. Enoch uh, bore Erad, Mahujiel, uh, Methusiel, and comes down to Lamech. So this is seven generations from Adam, if you count Adam. We assume that his sons, his grandsons, populated this city. Maybe they spread out a little bit and and started making more cities. And all of this uh, is much like our modern day cities. No indication of any interest in God. Just doing their thing. And so this is eventually going to culminate in another city, many, many generations down the road, called Babylon. And that was not the city of God, was it? That was the city of man trying to be like God, try to reach God on their own. All right, so we see this development of community, but a community of family that really ignores God. Now, uh, the next thing we see, beginning in verse 19, is a civilization uh, that develops its commerce, its culture, Again, apart from God, not having anything much to do with him. And it's interesting that when you learn in school the development of mankind, uh, the primitive development, it, it goes from apes to primeval man, then to uh, more developed man, and finally we have what we have now. But in the word of God, civilization started right from the very beginning almost. And this this idea that social evolution uh, goes the way of of, uh, uh, the evolutionary theory is really kind of mythological. We see it's, it's not gradual. It happens almost immediately. And the mental powers of, uh, of the sons of Lamech begin to develop uh, commerce and business and entertainment and tools and implements, everything that you need uh, to be able to live in life. Now he has three sons, and their, their names rhyme. J-ball, Jubal, Tubal. Imagine calling them out for dinner, you know. It gets kind of confusing. But we look at verse 20, and uh, he has a son, uh, he, he, uh, he took two wives, the name of one was Ada, the other Zillah, uh, and Ada bore Jabal. 
Well, Jabal was the progenitor of a certain group of people. He was the father or the progenitor of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Okay, so uh, a, a nomadic type lifestyle, more along the lines of Cain, wandering from place to place, a place where you can water your cattle, a place where you can uh, feed them. And, uh, and, of course, they would have intercourse with cities because, you know, you sell your goods and things of that nature. And he uh, dwelt in tents, temporary place to live, and then livestock would include uh, all kinds of, of, of cattle today, cows and goats and donkeys, not necessarily sheep, but that could have been included as well. And so from this, it's possible that uh, you're, you're going to get labor to help you with the farming. Um, it's possible that in rebellion to God's intention for people to eat of the produce of the ground, that they began eating meat. We don't know that for sure, but it's a possibility. And of course, uh, you're going to, your flocks and herds are going to be growing. You can sell them. You might sell them for meat. We don't know for sure. Uh, some of them will, will bear milk. Some of them uh, skin for clothing things of that nature. So this is kind of a, a business, commerce, developing. Then we have Jubal in verse 21. Uh, his brother's name was Jubal. Jubal is uh, an interesting name. And again, as I studied this, there's all kinds of suggestions of what the meaning of the names are, so there's no point trying to figure it out. But his name is related to pleasant sound. It may be where we get the term jubilee from the Old Testament. Uh, and so he invented stringed instruments. Um, the father of all who play the harp and the flute. The flute is, is not like the modern day flute, but it would be uh, similar in the sense it would be a weed instrument. So you blow in it and it can make different noises and things of that nature. All right, so uh, this perhaps is the rudiment of, of culture, the arts, entertainment. Uh, dancing and singing are associated with music. These things play music. Uh, poetry is set to music. So the purpose of all, all this is to provide satisfaction and enjoyment in life. Instead of Instead of sitting down in front of the TV, they would sit down and somebody would play a song and they all would sing. Something of, of that nature, a way to pass the time. So, uh, again, uh, their, their purpose is to provide satisfaction and enjoyment in life without God. And however, we know that nothing of this world can really satisfy you like God. And then we come to Tubal Cain. Here's another interesting character. Uh, he was born from Zillah. Uh, he's an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Okay, so now we're, we're getting somebody who can pound uh, iron into shapes, things of that, of that nature. And uh, these would, would be uh, turned into implements that you could use for farming or business or things of that nature. And also... Weapons. Weapons that people could use for self-defense, self-protection, 
or for evil purposes in showing your power over others. And so we have here the development of all these different things in early society, early civilization, but outside the realm of God. One commentator put it this way, all this is microcosm. Its pattern of technical powers and moral failures is that of humanity. And that's what we have today. Look at all these uh, rich technocrats and what they're doing. On one sense, they're helping society, but in another way, they're harming it. And it's all because we really aren't concerned about what God wants, but what we want. So without God in their thoughts, canine humanity developed on a secular plane. They devised ways to enhance their livelihood, to make life as pleasant as possible as they move farther and farther away from God. And city life today is a perfect picture of worldliness, isn't it? It's a conglomeration of culture and human achievement and business and commercial endeavor and entertainment, the nightlife. It's a symbol of secular humanism, of worldliness and life apart from God. Now, this isn't to say that we cannot be involved in these things. We cannot use these things. Of course, we're involved with commerce, with business, uh, human inventions, technology. Uh, We use music in our worship. Uh, But these things give us joy and they enhance our lives, but they aren't the end of life. They aren't the purpose. They're not the goal. Uh, We use these things for the glory of God. That's the chief end of everything. So we don't use them or develop these things for personal recognition and praise, but to promote and serve the kingdom of God. And that's where the world goes wrong. They don't have a God to which they can devote their lives. The last thing we see here about this development of civilization comes down to this one man, Lamech. And he's a boastful man. And his boast is given to his wives in verses 23 and 24. And so what we see here is civilization culminating in boastful defiance of God. Verse 23, Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now a comparison can be made here between this man and the seventh generation from Adam going through Seth. That man's name was Enoch also. But you remember what happened to Enoch? He walked so closely with God that one day God just took him right up to heaven. In contrast, we have a man bragging about taking somebody's life. Lamech. He proudly proclaims his, his prowess in killing another man. And he's proof of the degenerate nature of the serpent seed. Now, his rebellion is evidenced here in two ways. Okay, first of all, 
it says that he took two wives in verse 19. God began life on this earth between one man and one woman. That's his principle. And although this developed in society as an acceptable practice, God never condoned it. And what this indicates that by this time, by this generation of Lamech, that, that women have been devalued in society. I don't want just one, I want two, or three, or four, or five, or however many I, I want. And it also might indicate that the dissatisfaction with this relationship might have been a result of the degeneracy of your nature and your desire, your, your immorality, shall we say. But at any rate, he begins to brag to his two wives. And he calls upon them to listen. Now, this, this is the first... Uh, poem in the Bible. This is in poetic form. And it may well be that he's actually singing this to his wives. He made up a song to sing to his wives, bragging about what he had done. And he calls their attention. He says, Adon Zilla, you hear my voice. You listen to me. You pay attention to what I'm going to say here. And perhaps it was a little bit of a warning there. You know, you step out of line, this might happen to you. So you listen to what I have to say. So he begins here. Some have called this the song of the sword. And although the word sword's not named there, we, we might assume that he smote this or killed this person with a sword, with some kind of a weapon. And he mentions this incident. We don't, we don't know anything about it other than this. Somebody heard him. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for hurting me. So this is, this is not a mature man uh, who might be an equal in battle, so to speak. It's a, it's a young fella. We don't know what the wounding was. We don't know what the hurting was. But whatever it was, Lamech took his life. He killed him. No mercy. He was the avenger of someone who heard him. So here we have a second act of manslaughter, if not murder itself, following the ways of his ancestor Cain. It's coming out in him, even in a worse way, because we look at his boast. If Cain, now again, we're, we're several generations away from Cain, but they still know what Cain did. It's become, you know, a story. And if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold by God, then, oh man, I ought to be avenged 70 times that. Ten times, rather. So he alludes to the sin of his forefather Cain, boasting that if Cain is to be avenged seven whole, then, then Lamech ten times more than that. found the uh, comment of Kyle interesting as he summed this up. 
by this, uh, this uh, phrase, whoever inflicts a wound or a stripe on me, whether man or youth, I'll put him to death. And for every injury done to my person, I will take ten times more vengeance than that which God promised to avenge the murder of my ancestor Cain. So here's a guy who's boasting in his act of murder. He ascribed to himself the right of taking human life without the approval of God. Unrestrained vengeance uh, began to develop in the progeny of Cain. And Lamech says he doesn't need a God to protect him. He'll take care of it himself. He'll take matters in his own hands. And he'll use the devices of his sons to get the act done. And the modern worldly man may be refined on the outside, but they're just like Lamech on the inside. The seed of worldliness works in the flesh to make us independent of God and do pretty much whatever we want to do. Now, in contrast to the way of Cain, the way of the world, we see in the last couple of verses here the way of the faithful. And the way of the faithful preserves the worship of the Lord in the midst of a degenerate society. And we see in verse 25, the faithful recognize the provision of God. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son named Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So Eve's faith is once again coming out here, evidence in naming her son Seth. And this is related to a verb meaning to grant or to appoint. And Eve realized that Cain was not the promised seed. Maybe they thought he was right from the beginning. But in naming Seth, she acknowledges that God granted to her a replacement for Abel, who was a faithful son, and that through this son, the seed of the faithful would be perpetuated. In this, she recognized the provision of God in spite of the fact that Cain had killed Abel. And as the Lord provided a, a new son to carry on this hope of the seed, she believed that more and more and more would come from that particular line. And this is actually realized in the next generation in verse 24, or excuse me, verse 26. As, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Now this is interesting because Enosh is another Hebrew name for mankind. But this particular word focuses on the, the weakness and the frailty of man that, you know, he's not all this big, powerful guy like Lamech, but he's in need of help in life. He's in need of God in life because he is frail, because he is weak, uh, because he can go the way of Cain. And so, again, uh, this is indicating Dependence on God rather than separation from God. So that's the opposite characteristic of the line of, of, uh, of Cain and the development of human civilization without God. Here's a turning back to God. And so we see that then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So that gives us hope. And then we have this line of Seth developing in chapter 5 up to the time of Noah. 
The verb to call indicates both a proclamation and prayer. So apparently at the time that, that Seth, likely his father, uh, at this period of time, people began to, uh, at least from this particular line, began to make known the Lord through worship, through prayer, through obedience. And what a contrast this would be to the ungodly civilization developing further east. And again, a comment from one of the commentators. While the family of Canaanites, by the erection of a city and the invention and development of worldly arts and business, were laying the foundation for the kingdom of this world, the family of the Sethites began by united invocation of the name of God, the God of grace, to found and erect the kingdom of God. So the two seeds going in opposite directions. And that's the way it is today. Same thing. Two ways, two seeds, two directions, two kingdoms. So as it was then, it is today. All people are born in the way of Cain, are they not? You're born that way. Following your own selfish inclinations under the power of Satan in the grip of worldly civilization. But two millennia ago, the seed of the woman came to fruition in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. He provides for us salvation from the way of Cain, and by faith in him alone, we can be saved from that lifestyle. We have the gracious privilege then to be among the seed of the faithful, like Seth and those who followed him. So once again, we have the application this morning of which seed are you? Are you the, of the seed of Cain? Are you still among the unrighteous who refuse to confess their sin and turn to Christ? Maybe at times you feel remorseful for your wrongdoing, but you fall short of repentance? Are you wandering through life trying to find satisfaction and joy in the myriad devices that we have to pass the time, take our energy? Or are you among the faithful who recognize their need for forgiveness and dependence upon God, and they come to Christ, they repent, and they receive eternal life? We've got to be in one of those two groups. And then if you are among the faithful, you need to remember something that a commentator said. In an affluent and self-indulgent society, the religious must preserve the knowledge of the Lord. Because how else are people going to know about it if we don't tell them? Few people pick up the Bible, uh, the Gideon Bible in the hotel. Most people hear it from somebody who already knows. And we do this by proclaiming the truth about who God is and what he's done to save lost humanity. And may he give us the strength and the grace to do that in our civilization. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for your word, what it teaches us. And Lord, we see that the history re- repeats itself. And even though we may be 
much more developed technologically and civilized and all that stuff. The basic underlying features were present from almost the beginning. Lord, if there's someone here who's still lost in the way of Cain, we pray they turn to Christ today. Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to constantly turn away from the way of Cain, the way of humanistic civilization, to walk in your ways, to do your will, through your power and your spirit. And thus, Lord, be a witness and a testimony to the lost world in which we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.